Two Humorous Nurses with Kelly and Alicia, the podcast whose skill it is to make you laugh. Welcome to episode 26 of Two Humorous Nurses podcast. We plan to bring you funny, informal, conversational chat about all things nursing. Today we have a couple of special guests, Simone and Elsa. Elsa is the talented author of junior fiction, a performer, an acrobat, a professional whip cracker, and Simone is a passionate nurse educator, social justice advocate, and an acrobat. She's worked in ICU, oncology, family violence, education and sexual health. Simone was also nominated for Nurse of the Year and it truly is a testament to the wonderful human she is. Elsa offered to listen to Simone talk through her experience with free training in ICU to work frontline during COVID and she tells her story in the most human way. Their friendship, the amazing skills of being caring and the connections in the book are so powerful. Welcome, ladies. Hi, it's great to be here. (laughs) Simone, tell us about your nursing career before COVID through a loop. Oh, do you want the short story or the long story? (laughs) Whatever you want. (laughs) Um, So I actually trained as a nurse in Western Australia before I moved across to Melbourne. And I really didn't know what kind of nurse I wanted to be. Like I, I had so many, so many ideas and, and dreams that I wanted to follow. But I guess the first, um, the first big step I took as a nurse was to do my training in critical care and to become an ICU nurse. And I worked at Peter McCallum, which is a specialist cancer hospital. So I worked there for quite a long time as an ICU nurse before kind of finding out that I really enjoyed nursing education and teaching. Uh, My mum's a teacher and I think she'd be very proud of me for kind of getting into that teaching field. Uh, And so then becoming a nurse educator led me into sort of specialist nurse education roles like I do at the Royal Melbourne now in a a family violence nurse education role. But to try and um, to keep my clinical hand in as well, I've always kind of kept doing various clinical jobs. And one of those is as a sexual health nurse consultant at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. So that's kind of a rough summary. <laughs> sounds so interesting. Yeah. You so described different. yourself as like a hodgepodge nurse. Yeah, I really I, do feel like that. Yeah, <laughs> but it all flows. And I think it all works in the areas that you seem to be so passionate about. Yeah, I think I've kind of made a bit of a role for myself in uh helping and supporting nurses to have those difficult conversations, whether it's about family violence or sexual health or, you know, LGBTIQA inclusive practice and trans and gender diverse affirmative healthcare, you know, all of those, uh, those discussions and conversations that we find sometimes a bit tricky. Um, I love working in those areas. Um, We live in the country and I think that is something that's really lacking Totally um, out here, those areas that you talk about. Well, um, I'd love to come and visit. Go in and talk to our <laughs> nurse educator. Yeah. <laughs> say, hello, I met this really nice person. <laughs> she wants a country holiday. Yeah. Yes, come to us. Yeah. In where we are, we're really lucky not to have any COVID cases in our hospital. I know I would love to know about what it was like to live and work in Melbourne as a nurse in the lead up to the first COVID cases and how you prepared yourself and your friends and family for that. Yeah, that preparation phase was, they they feel very distinct in my head, that first wave and second wave. And that first wave being such a such a strange time when, you know, they, they shut down elective surgery, the hospital became really quiet. We went into lockdown in Melbourne. So suddenly people weren't, uh, going about their normal day in terms of driving cars and having and going to work in places where they might have accidents and having big parties where there might have been lots of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So all of those reasons meant that there were so many less people coming to hospital and people were pretty scared about coming to hospital. So as a result of having pretty much no visitors in the hospital and our patient population really reduced, it felt like a strange kind of really stressful ghost town in a way where we were in full preparation mode, thinking like listening to what was happening in in the other countries around the world and and listening particularly to what was going on in Italy at that time and kind of imagining how this was going to hit. You know, I was 
I was having dreams at night sometimes of a um, just kind of seeing a tsunami coming towards the beach and I was standing on the beach waiting for this wave to crash. Uh, so, look, there were so many big preparations happening at the hospital and so much of that was beyond me, like in my little role. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember hearing about how the hospital was going to be divided into hot and cold areas. Different wards were going to be hot, like hot in terms of COVID patients would go there. And, and different and teams were being split. So there'd be COVID teams and non-COVID teams to try and make sure that there wasn't, if staff got infected, that didn't spread to other teams. Within the ICU, which is, so um, because I'm a nurse with ICU background, I got uh, pulled back into ICU and retrained to make sure that I could work in, in this big trauma ICU for when the pandemic did hit. So we were doing lots of preparation around um, staff training and getting a, you know, a whole lot of extra staff into ICU because we had to increase our beds. Like we we expected to be seeing potentially 10,000 patients a day walking through the doors or not even walking through, but being brought in through the doors. And so we had to expand our ICU from a 32 bed ICU right up to a potential capacity of 99 beds. So lots of staff training, lots of pretty specialist training. In we were hearing from um, overseas hospitals that COVID patients were doing better being nursed prone, so on their stomach, which you can imagine when you've got all the ICU tubes and wires and ventilators, that's yeah. really tricky. So we were going through drills in terms of how to turn patients. We were having so much education in terms of PPE because we were finding that the messages were changing constantly. And I'm sure some of this is pretty <laughs> yeah. similar to what you did as well. Like, yeah. do we do this first or that first? And which mask are we wearing yeah. with what? And, and how often and how often are we changing it? So I think the it was a strange mix of empty corridors and incredible incredibly busy people trying not to be close to each other you know yeah. so yeah there was a, a lot time. of um, disaster preparation I found yeah. even yeah. in our small hospital in our little oncology unit we were prepping for what if one of us gets sick that would wipe us all out because there was yeah three staff that worked yeah, there wow. so there was a yeah. lot of you know that lot of and you did talk about um that when you in the book when you were talking about um being at the radiotherapy center at Peter McCallum with your friend Josh and how you had to make decisions on who could have time with the nurse and who needed time with the nurse. and Yeah, just... that was it. We were having to kind of work out what was essential service and what wasn't yeah. and what was a risk to patients. So we were trying to reduce patient contact with staff members, but where could we cut that back? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, as nurses, I think you'd, you'd know we're always trying to give more and we're always trying to work yeah. out how can we give better care when suddenly we had to give less. And I think we were all yeah. struggling with that, going how do we cut back from what we already feel is not enough? And we're giving yeah. less to the people that need more. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. At, at a time when it's incredibly yeah, stressful yeah. and everyone's, yeah. you know, yeah, even more worried than usual. And yeah. and then the staff, and then yeah. there was the distancing of, you yeah. know, masks and face shields and how do we keep those connections? Awful. Yeah. Most of the patients we see in our hospital, I'd say our medium age is well above 60. <laughs> well, well <laughs> above. Yeah. And you know, that having that face mask on and the shield on and like some of the, the patients with delirium and they... Or if they're hard of hearing terrified. and they partly yeah. lip read and... Yeah. Yeah. Terrified, absolutely terrified. Can't hear you, can't see what yeah. you're saying, don't know that you're smiling at them. Like yeah. Yeah. yeah, crazy. It was a crazy time. It's hard to uh, sort of picture it behind us. Like I feel like we're all still, it's like it could come back at any moment. I know. Like, I feel like that crazy. level of complacency yeah, feels scary. Yeah. I yeah. see people out too, like at the football, and I'm like, go home. <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe yet. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about what it was like to be in the ICU during the first wave in Melbourne. There would still be the non-COVID patient. Yeah, yeah. So during the first wave, it felt like I was, I was on a steep learning curve. I was trying to get back to learning, 
you know, everything that I used to do in ICU but haven't done for five years. And yeah. technology changes during that time and ventilators change and luckily human bodies don't. So physiology yeah. stays the same, <laughs> but all of the equipment I was getting used to, to working in that environment again. But of course, yeah, you're right. There were, there were so many patients in ICU still because people still have heart attacks yeah. and <laughs> um, choke on things and, and collapse from a brain bleed or a stroke or, yeah. So, and there were still car accidents and things that were happening yeah. around the place. So we definitely it. still had lots of those patients. I think the first wave, we all kind of got out of it easy, but second wave Melbourne was full on. And it yeah. was full on for the nurses and the healthcare workers and hospital staff in general. You were part of a team that supported those or the nurses, healthcare workers in quarantine or affected by COVID in some way. Yeah. That chapter of the book just did me in. Like, I just thought <laughs> those poor people, like your stories are incredible. The way that you, I mean, I did not know that the Royal Melbourne put, did as much as they yeah, did same. to support um, yeah. their staff and the people that weren't their staff but were family of their staff, like what a situation that was to be in. And and I think we all heard about it and as nurses we all sort of felt really bad for them. But, you know, just little things like the bin wind with your PPE, yeah. like that was getting <laughs> people in like, and yeah. like and yeah, then when afterwards. you put your PPE in the bin, yeah. that, that closing of the lid yeah. can transfer COVID. Like, yeah. We knew, we knew yeah. this stuff. <laughs> and then afterwards, I don't know, we had all our fit testing literally only just recently and none of the masks that I wear fitted. So I wouldn't have mattered anyway if I was exposed. And the same, I know that you had the same situation when you yeah, had your fit testing. Yeah, my fit, fit test was quite late as well. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that calling, you know, what yeah. it was like for you that to do well, that. I got I got pulled into that team because I'd been... I'd been moved from my family violence education role into ICU, but then because our ICU grew, but it didn't grow to the same because of our lockdowns being so mm. effective, we didn't have that same need for that as many beds as we thought. So I became part of a group of staff that were actually then cobbled together. It was pretty much all the staff that were kind of excess or, or sometimes staff that couldn't work clinically as well, because potentially they had a, a chronic condition or something like that. So we all came together to try and support the staff that were in quarantine, either because they'd been furloughed, maybe they were a close contact, um, or they contracted COVID. And over that period, you know, there were, I think it was around 700 staff, um, nursing, allied health staff, cleaners, medical, who at some point needed to do at least two weeks quarantine or isolation. Yeah, that's crazy. And, so many. and we think about it, like we've all kind of, I guess now, you know, this many months on, we've all had a much a closer experience of what that could look like. And we've talked lots more about what quarantine is and how you need to keep, you know, your family members safe when you're at home, potentially with COVID, you know, waiting to find out results. But at the time, it was such a sudden shock. I think when that first staff member got diagnosed at the Royal Melbourne and then we had multiple outbreaks, it was, it was such a shock to the staff. And, you know, staff were kind of coming to work one day and then realising they were a close contact and having to go home straight away and, and um, effectively quarantine from their household. So for some staff, that was possible in their house. But even then, we, had to, we were calling to talk through how best to use the bathroom and clean things down afterwards and how are you going to coordinate um, getting people to drop food at your door and, you know, how can you, you know, it's a lot of staff had small children who were in the house as well who were wanting to come into the room where their parent was and, you know, were crying at the door or they were kind of looking through the window and, it was pretty traumatic time for staff and some of our staff members couldn't quarantine at home. They didn't have, you know, the, the, the facilities at home to make that work. So they had to go into a hotel and they might have literally found out 
that day that they need, they're going to be picked up and taken to a hotel. In that moment, you know, it's kind of throw together a few things that you might need for two weeks on your own in a hotel. And, you know, people were worried about their families. They were worried about, you know, family members getting COVID. They were worried about their patients. A lot of our Mm. staff um, worked in aged care areas where they actually had spent a long time working with those patients. And they they knew that there had been an outbreak in our aged care departments and they just, they were so worried and so our job as I guess we were set up and we kind of called ourselves the staff health monitoring team and there was nurses and allied health like social workers mental health professionals and doctors and we all kind of worked together to to ring staff and basically you know just talk through what was going on and see what we could try and help with and sometimes it was really kind of logistical things like you know we had one nurse who was trying to figure out how to how to feed her horses and um because they were in a (laughs) separate place to where she was living and people trying to work out oh my dog needs some medicine from the vet how and I live on my own how am I going to get the medicine from the vet and so we'd be trying to help logistically problem solve you know there was a, a physio who was in he was being a furloughed and he was in a hotel and he was a an elite athlete and he really needed his cross trainer because he had a competition <laughs> coming up. So, you know, when we had the four, we had a 4K rule. Oh, sorry. Was it four? I can't remember now. Five. Five. Five, five Ks. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Five K rule. So I remember him talking about how he had this like list of people who could drive it like partner drove it it 4k so we were trying to be safe so she drove it 4k's and then someone else picked it up he was in that zone and drove it another 4k's to try and get it to the hotel so he could have a cross trainer for two weeks so So sometimes sometimes we got to have a laugh which was pretty nice but a lot of the time it was yeah it was pretty hard I think on everyone were you worried about getting COVID or do you know initially yeah initially I think when I heard the you know, when we were thinking about the pandemic coming in, mm. but a lot of the information at that point was about how if you're younger and you don't have any health yeah. issues, then it was unlikely to affect you. So I think at that point, when I put my hand up to go back to ICU, I probably wasn't thinking about myself yeah. in terms of my health. As I we got was. To- oh, I also yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point I to jump in. I was worried she was going to have COVID. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really glad that my... <laughs> Sometimes you don't, I think this is, you, you'd understand this as well as healthcare workers, that when we often don't think about ourselves, no, we yeah. think about everyone else around yeah, us. And, else. Yeah. and, you know, we, we set up things at home to try and make sure that um, my girlfriend was also working at the hospital in the emergency department. And, you know, we'd make sure that we took our shoes off and um, clothes off and when I, we went, our scrubs went straight in the washing machine and we went straight in the shower. Um, and I had a big chat. Luckily, my housemates were pretty understanding and we made a bit of a plan for, okay, well, what happens if I did get furloughed? How would I quarantine in the house? Um, and, you know, if I did get COVID, we decided that I would go to a hotel. So I had a bit of a bag packed oh, in my yeah. bed that had, you know, some snacks that's and a book. good and- planning, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, in that moment, how do you decide, you know? what? Yeah, that's right. We didn't have, did you ever feel like you were at risk? Uh, I literally never felt. Only because I'm an asthmatic. Mm. Mm. that worried me and you were pregnant and were you pregnant, pregnant at that yeah point? yeah yeah but not really I was more worried about infecting my mother-in-law and my mm. grandparents yeah I think when it first started my mother-in-law and father-in-law were on a cruise ship not really princess <laughs> but and uh, <laughs> they didn't realize how bad it was and so I was saying to them I've put some more stock in your in your cupboard and you know when you when you get off in New Zealand, buy some toilet paper to bring back because there's no <laughs> toilet paper. Like, can you... And they were like, you're tapped in the head, mate. You're crazy. And because they had limited reception out there and things, so it wasn't until they docked in Melbourne and it took them oh, like 10 hours to get off the boat because they were testing some suspicious people that they started to see the news and they started to realise. And we were saying to them, 
you're not getting in the car with us. Like you've been on a cruise ship. Like Ooh. we will drive your car down. You drive yourself back. You don't stop anywhere. Like, you, you know, cause they were like, we'll just get on the train. And I'm like, no way. Like <laughs> this is like serious stuff. And I think, you know, the Ruby princess then sort of at the same time. And I think it, when they got back and they realized that they were going to have to quarantine for two weeks how are we going to do this and she my mother-in-law was so funny I would drop off the shopping in the front she'd be like just leave it there it's fine and she would never give me my bags back she would like (laughs) because she's like I don't want you to touch anything and I think in that first a couple of months it was really overwhelming and I was really overwhelmed at work and I was overwhelmed at home and I was obsessively checking things and then I was worrying about the people in Melbourne and I was worried about my friends in Perth that work in ICUs and like I was just overwhelmed by everything and then when I realized it probably isn't going to be as bad I sort of breathed a sigh of relief and then the second wave hit (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) how we too and then we just (laughs) ah damn it (laughs) here we go and we had it worse than ever and no one understood and yeah yeah. sure like whatever like. We, we had some staff members I spoke to who were working on the hot wards who were really terrified about even sleeping in their house yeah you know I heard from about people sleeping in cars or only staying in their bedroom because they were so worried about it's you know so elderly crazy. family members in the house and yeah yeah it's, and there were um, also people who had um who had housemates who were less understanding, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Heaps of nurses have housemates. And of course, yeah. And some of those housemates were freaked out and not friendly about it, you know? Yeah. So that was well, like I think there was that thought that nurses were dirty. So all of a sudden we were like the heroes. But now <laughs> yeah. we're like, oh, don't come near me, you're a nurse. Yeah. So our hospital said you cannot go out in your uniform. So if you you can't go to the shop in a uniform, you have to go home and get dressed. And I was like, I'm just going to put a big cardigan on because I live <laughs> like 10 minutes out of town. Or I'd, if I knew I had to go somewhere after work, I had to take a T-shirt with me to change out of my uniform because people were sort of getting quite cranky at the nurses and verbally assaulting yeah, them. Yeah, people and, were pretty scared. Hey, yeah. yeah. Um, I love that first line in your book where you're like... <laughs> the world's just going to see a lot of naked healthcare workers on their front porches <laughs> and they change out of their clothes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it just made me laugh. I thought, oh, God, that's so I remember just seeing a poster rude. about how you, you have to take everything off yeah. before yeah. you enter your house. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the book, The Care Factor, a story of nursing and connection in a time of social distancing. It was so beautiful. I haven't read a book in eight years. I cried <laughs> a lot. I felt like seen. I just wanted to hug everybody in it. She's not a hugger. No. <laughs> your, the stories, not just yours and Simone's, but everybody's in there. It just, like, I just loved it. And I just, everyone needs to go and buy it and read it. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> Jess read it in less I, than 24 hours. Yeah. Whoa. I started yesterday afternoon. That's and amazing. And she has three it. kids. Love so. <laughs> That's our new record, I think, Jess. Uh, (laughs) My husband's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm reading a book. He's like, that's not a book. I was like, yes, but it is a book. It's on my phone. He's like, oh, okay. Right, what's it about? I was like, I can't talk. I've just got to keep (laughs) He's like, how can you read with all these screaming kids? I'm like, I can because I'm just, I'm tuned into this book, okay? (laughs) What sort of prompted you to say, call me, I'm here to listen and I and then sort of turn that into a book yeah well first can I just say thank you for telling us what it was like for you to read it because 
I feel like I kind of hoped that, but that it would be that a little bit moving and touching and that nurses would have seen, but I actually didn't know. And um, so I'm really glad that it was that for you. So thanks yeah, for saying it. It really was. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess so I'm a writer and I in the past have mostly written children's books. And so in March last year, as it was all going down overseas and just starting to look scary, I couldn't write the children's books I was trying to write. I was like, mm, couldn't focus. My yeah. eyes would just slide away from the screen. I just kept clicking back to the news. I got really anxious. I think I got a cold really early on and was like, I've got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it was everyone's all worst fear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like at two in the morning, I'd wake up at two in the morning and be like, oh, God, I've got COVID. Um, and I, and then when Sim said that she was retraining for the ICUs, and I feel like at that point everything was about ICUs. I feel like, I don't know why. Yeah. I just felt like everything was about ICUs in the news. And I know that it really wasn't the case that it was all about ICUs throughout. There was so much other nursing going on. Um, but when Sim said she was retraining for ICU, I got scared for Sim, like I said. But also I thought we're friends. We're good friends and Sim likes talking and I like listening to Sim and I thought. <laughs> I do like talking, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> That's why we're all in a podcast together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like talking too. We, we have this friendship where we do talk and we share things that feel really tough. But also immediately as soon as Sim started talking, I thought this could be a story. It's a really interesting story and Maybe there's going to be a million stories exactly like it, but also this is going to, this, yeah, this could be something that I write down. And, but I was also just imagining a time when we were in lockdown. You know, I feel like I I read news articles about Wuhan, about kids doing exercise over Zoom, and it blew my mind. It was like this whole, I hadn't, I, I couldn't imagine experiencing it, but I also thought we're going to be in lockdown. Sim's not going to be able to go and have any of her other kind of, what she does to make her feel good and I'm not I can't really offer anything else (laughs) but I can offer to listen and so I called and said can I listen and can I be your debrief person and also do you mind if I record those conversations and also uh did I tell you I was going to apply for the grant no I don't think you did no. I didn't know about that. <laughs> I applied for a grant. No, I did. Well, I tell you, I told you when I got the grant. Yeah, yeah. Because then you knew that. That was great because then it felt like you were getting a small amount of pay to listen to me. Yeah, then yeah. I feel like that kind of made it possible because otherwise I would have had to do, I would have had to figure out how to get paid by doing some other kind of freelance job because my also my work is at least half of my work is going into schools and running workshops. And so that obviously stopped happening. And yeah, so the fact that I got the City of Melbourne grant meant that I kind of had out paid hours to listen to Sim. And it was like, it was where my attention was. So it was easy to do. Mm-hmm. It was easier. Whenever Sim's number came up on my phone, I'd be like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, like partly, like partly it's that thing about just wanting to know exactly what's happening and I was listening to the news and the news wasn't enough and I wanted to know what was happening in the hospital and I lived just up the road from the Royal Melbourne Hospital as well so it was so close to me and yeah so 
it was kind of for both of us, I feel like. It was something that was this offer of support to Sim of I will listen to you. But it also it was kind of offered me the closest thing to my job, which is writing, which was also close to the thing that my anxiety was just pushing my attention towards the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like it worked for both of us and was kind of something that cared for both of us as well. Because initially I was like, oh, this feels like such a, you know, such a a burden in some ways of me kind of being debriefing all the time. But Elsa's like, no, this is why it works for me as well. And so it kind of felt, it felt mutual in that way. It was like uh, taking your acrobatics out of the yes. acrobatic room and just having verbal <laughs> acrobatics. Exactly like, like that. Normally I stand on other. Elsa's shoulders, but then yeah. I sort of metaphorically stood on her shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> Were the stories hard to process for you, Elsa, like to understand the medical stuff and those sometimes very emotional stories or just very gross poo stories? <laughs> I feel like the med- there was definitely medical stuff I didn't understand, um, which we realised when Sim read the draft. <laughs> I had to be pretty heavily involved in the editing process. Sim was like, um, I, don't, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was definitely things I didn't understand that I learned, like heaps, heaps. I have no healthcare background at all. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we had to draw like drawings of tracheostomies so you could yeah. help understand where the tube was going. You know how we talk about medical staff we think of doctors yeah in for people who aren't healthcare workers medical staff seems to be more encompassing of everyone so mm-hmm. sometimes I anyone who was working in the hospital I'd be reading yeah. the sentence going what do you mean the medical staff were doing that it was us yeah <laughs> like, as if a doctor would do that <laughs> and Elsa's like no I mean the medical staff like all of the medical staff <laughs> like oh like healthcare workers like or, yeah, yeah like it's and when the we ter- wrote the, the chapter about uh, me working in radiotherapy and I was trying to explain to Elsa why, why the, the radiation machines are in the bunker, we actually phoned Josh, the manager of the radiotherapy department, to yeah. get Josh to talk through the, the <laughs> physics of radiation <laughs> treatment and why we needed to be deep in a bunker. So yeah, that was great. I like we about clocks at some point. I don't know. But, we did, um, yeah. <laughs> but, and also consultant. I was like, what is a consult? What is that? It was like, you know, we, those. So, yeah. yes, medically there was things I didn't understand. Just emotionally processing it. I feel like, you know, I really knew that it wasn't my story. So even though I was kind of touched and I remember crying a particular, I think because I'm a mother of a small child, thinking about those mums trying to isolate from their children while they could hear their children mm. that really messed with me and it still messes with me every time. Did I you cry at that bit? I would have cr- I cried at that bit where you were talking about the mum just listening to her child sob on the other side of the door. Yeah. I was like, that, yeah. yeah. As yeah. much as you love time away, that time away would have been horrible. The, actually, the, I can't do two more weeks of this got me actually. Mm. When yeah. that, no child care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When there was no oh, child care yeah. for you, and you were like, that really got me. Yeah, I, was like, I, I feel you. <laughs> and they're like, the parks are open. Like, oh my god, <laughs> let's go to the park. <laughs> yes, when the playgrounds open that every was day. <laughs> <laughs> was the best. The stories in the book are so wonderful. They're real and emotional. What is your favorite story? Um, I don't know. I feel like there's so many stories in there that I feel. Want me to start? (laughs) (laughs) Mine is really easy because it was the story where 
Ailsa got to be all the many things to Jack, her little one, in one day. Yes. There, <laughs> yeah. There's this long list. And I love it because in the first draft, that, that went for even longer. It was just <laughs> literally Ailsa had been everything from a dinosaur to a dinosaur pooing and then you refused to be the poo coming out of the dinosaur and then you'd be park and then you'd been. I cut, there was just this great bit. And every time I read it, because I had to read the book quite a few times, I just, I found, you know, I guess a lot of the stories that were connected to me in healthcare, I found them quite hard reading them over and over, but I loved reading the stories of Ailsa parenting in lockdown and, and just being, and yeah. being so awesome. And I just like, yeah, I love that that is the contrast as well with the what's going on Yeah, yeah. in the rest of the book. I love mm. when you sat down with your husband to divide out the yes. time <laughs> was in the, who was doing what and when, and I'm working now and you're doing this because I, you know, Mojave and I both worked through it and our, you know, without my wonderful mother-in-law homeschooling my child, we would never have managed. And I just think that you were stuck at home and I could not have done that, <laughs> like with my husband and my daughter. And I just, yeah, I thought that was a really good way to manage that. And it was a really, oh, I just loved it. I actually, I loved all your stories, Elsa, <laughs> like the, the play one and oh, just, and the bath when you're talking to Sim and you're like, no, nah, i got to go. The kid just climbed <laughs> in like, I just... <laughs> There's just so many. You have honestly, if you haven't got the book yet, you need to go get it. Like I don't promote books because I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be. I love shouting. that. I love that this is the book that broke your eight year drought. Yeah. yeah, I actually, I don't think I've read a book for probably just as long. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I um, guess I feel like my book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like my favorite stories probably um Frankie and I think that's because yeah. I because I met him he was part of Sim's story but he also had his own story yeah. and it was really the moment when he was talking about when he I think in the book the patient's name is Matteo when he meets this he's got an elderly elderly COVID patient who speaks Italian and reminds him of his nonna and um I just feel like I just didn't understand what nursing really was until Frankie talked about what it was like to work nights trying to turn you know that what that bedside nursing was until it was like how many patients he had to turn in a night and just the the physicality of that work um but also at the same time that thing of holding the holding the phone so that the person can talk to their family and I just found that kind of I guess heartbreaking and devastating yeah yeah but amazing the thought of all of those elderly patients that died alone and the families, like my grandmother died right at the very start of COVID in a hospital in Perth. We know she never had a funeral. Mm. Um, I haven't even been able to see my family yet to sort of celebrate her life. And, you know, I did try to go home over Christmas and, and he shut the borders literally <laughs> as I packed my bag. So, <laughs> um, and then obviously I, I didn't want to pull my daughter out of school and it's just been a real like I can't wait to get home, touch wood, in, at the end of June. But, yeah, I just think there's so many people out there that missed out on celebrating lives and, and yeah. dying alone and that heartbreaking side of it that as nurses we just compartmentalise and tuck away. But, yeah, Frankie's story was, I don't know, it was just beautiful. And I really had messaged him earlier and just said I, I would love to have a chat with him on the podcast. Mm. I just think his story is probably one that everyone should hear maybe. Like I just... He just yeah. seems like such an amazing human. And I like I love that chapter mm. with him in it. So yeah. when Jess walked in, she said, I think the best thing I found about the book was the, your friendship. Yeah. 
was just overwhelming through it. Yeah. Just it that. was it was one of the things that got me through for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It became it became such a lifeline. And you know, initially it started out as an offer of care and I was able to debrief with Elsa when I needed to. And when we found out in August that we had a book contract and we needed to get the book finished by when was it, October? October. It was a really short turnaround. We, we don't know about this as nurses, but authors normally take quite a long time to write yeah. <laughs> to write books. So I also was like, oh gosh, this is going to be the fastest thing I've ever written. Um, and I think at that point, an element like, you know, it sort of took on this extra element of importance because it felt like we were documenting history. And I, yeah. you know, I'd come home from work and Elsa was the first person I wanted to talk to. It's almost like I wanted to, to ring her and just download all of that in in its freshest form because I wanted it to be really real and authentic and and so even so much as my housemates and my girlfriend didn't get the stories sometimes they didn't get them till they read the book because Mm. I'd had a big chat to Elsa and I'd kind of gone good that's processed now yeah (laughs) and then yeah so let it go yeah I think something about that Elsa was really really clever to go let's record it because you know, if we wrote, if I wrote a book now with Elsa about what that was like over the pandemic, sure, I'd be like, oh, there was really hard bits. Yeah. And yeah, I do remember crying a lot. But, but what you actually get in the book is me talking in the real moment. Like, mm. you know, those, those conversations, are, there's a lot of really kind of unedited sort of well, edited, but but it is sort of um, verbatim script. Of, yeah. And when we were first editing the book, I kept saying to Elsa, I'm like, can we just delete a couple of the times I cry? Like, <laughs> it seems to, be, seems to be every time I open the book, it's like Sim called me in tears and she's like, no. Nope. <laughs> I feel like that's every time you cried, there was probably like 100 nurses also sitting in a bathroom somewhere just crying. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was how we, it's how we got through it, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And hello, you worked seven, 24-7. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a, a little bit too much work going on. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you've had some time off. <laughs> I have. I've definitely wound back. Now that I'm back to my normal four days a week, it's like, wow, so much time. Yeah, I, know <laughs> I think we could probably find many negatives about COVID in 2020. Simone and Elsa, can you tell us a positive from that experience besides the book yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think for me the positives really come through in terms of connection and I think you know what it was so interesting because you know COVID is a time of social distancing and in many ways disconnection and us being disconnected from family and friends and our patients physically with PPE but I think what's come through is that all the ways that humans strive to make connection and those beautiful ways that we do that And, and I think the book is one of those examples but you know, another example is my gorgeous street um, where I live in Melbourne, where someone started up a WhatsApp group and people then just kind of looked after each other through this WhatsApp group, including having, you know, someone would play music on the street corner some nights. Um, other people would put a call out if they um, needed, you know, they had extra lemons they wanted to share. And uh, when someone had a birthday, we all stood out in our front yards and banged pots and pans <laughs> while they walked up and down the street. And and I think that wouldn't have happened, you know, no. that those beautiful moments where we managed to find connection and and how much we we there now appreciate that connection in all of its forms. Yeah. And getting getting to meet you two and getting to hear from people who've read the book and kind of I'm just I'm so excited thinking about all the ways that this book is is creating mm. connections. Yeah. So, so I think that that's the big thing for me, I think that comes through. I think for me, I, I am way more grateful for tiny things 
um, so I remember, you know, when we were only allowed out of the house for an hour a day and we lived in an upstairs two-bedroom apartment with a little balcony and I remember there was a point where there was some flower on my balcony came into bloom and it was just, I was like, oh, this is really pretty. <laughs> Such a pretty flower. I'm just going to look at it for a little bit. <laughs> but But also, so Jack didn't get to play Jack, my four-year-old, didn't get to play with another child for more than seven Mm. weeks. And now I still watch him playing with other kids and I just think, I'm so glad. Like I'm so, so happy to watch him play with other kids. And honestly, for him to be like more than five metres away from me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I just stand there watching him playing with other kids, just feeling really grateful that I'm not having to be a dinosaur. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but that he has, that now he has that again. Yeah. So lovely. Just thank you so much for chatting with us today. I... Yes. On it, I'll say it again, but I love the book. <laughs> I'm so glad you do. <laughs> My stepmom, um, she had sent me a message with the Conversations podcast that you had done and said, you need to listen to this. And I did. And then I immediately stalked you and was like, <laughs> can you please come on my podcast? Like, <laughs> And I bought the book and I, you know, my stepmom said, have you heard back? Have you heard back? And I was like, no, but I don't think she's very like, no, on social media sale. that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's fine. I haven't read the book yet anyway. And then literally the day after the book arrived, you got back to me. So I read the book because I was like, oh, geez, I better read it. <laughs> um, and I was so, oh, I was just so glad to have you on because the book is 2020 in a nutshell it is what I imagined working in Melbourne would have been like the as bad as it was but also as you say all those connections all the other little stories in the book just made it an easy read like it's truly an easy read and I cried and I laughed and I just I loved I loved it and I think everyone should go get it I will link in the show notes where you can get it. I just hope one day I can be as good at having human connections as you two are because <laughs> I feel like sometimes I lack that and it's you inspiring. Like it's absolutely beautiful. Agree. Well, thank you. Thank you both for all the amazing work you do as well in regional Victoria and and, and for creating a podcast where we can talk about nursing and yes. uh, yeah, pull some of the great stories out and share it around and, and let people know that, you know, nurses come in so many different shapes and sizes and roles and and ways of being in the world and yeah, yeah. so thanks for showcasing that diversity uh don't forget to like share and follow us on instagram at two humorous nurses podcast send us your questions stories and topic ideas to our email humorous nurses at gmail.com that's humorous like the bone h-u-m-e-r-u-s bye, bye.